right, all right. Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for coming and being the church. Can you, uh, can you look to about three people, five people next to you and say hello to them, people you haven't said hi to yet? Um, if you see someone all the way across the hall, say hello. Uh, for those worshiping online, hello. Can you wave to us? Yeah, we see you. Wonderful. Great, great, great. Well, it is uh, yeah, certainly good to be together here uh, this uh, fine morning. There was um, an article written by a man named David Brooks. It came out last year in the New York Times. So this is pre-pandemic, okay? before the pandemic, uh, before COVID, before shutdown, before all these things happened. And what David Brooks was saying is, in college campuses all over America, uh, the mental health facilities were overflowing with college students who had just uh, dealing with depression, anxiety, different fears. Uh, he said suicide rates were, were, were skyrocketing on campuses um, in different places. And he kind of uh, did a bunch of research and he, he boiled it down to this. His basic premise was the reason why we're struggling so much mentally is because as a nation, as a culture, we have bought into a series of lies. Basically, he said we're, we're a community, we're a culture that's built on lies. And then he delineates a bunch of them. And the great majority of them have to do with either identity or work. Things like uh, work can make me happy. The more successful I am, the happier I'll be. The richer people are the ones who are more uh, content in life. I can forge my own path, my individual path to success and happiness through my work and through my vocation, uh, things like that. And he said, because of these lies that we've built a culture upon, um, there's an increase, a, just an exponential spike in the number of people who are depressed, who are sad, who feel like happiness in life is an elusive thing, and so they'd rather find their happiness by escaping than trying to find it here in this life. This morning, what I want to do is I want to take some of these lies that we've been told from our culture and really expose them through the truth of God's Word as we talk about, again, this ever-important area of our lives called our work or our school or our vocation, whatever it is that you want to call it, but basically what you do during the day for the greater part of your day, when you wake up, you wake up and you go somewhere or you stay somewhere to do the work that you are called to do. Uh, I want to talk about this massive chunk of time, and the reason I want to do that is because obviously uh, a huge part of life is spent there, and if we're not following Christ there, then we're missing out on not only a huge part of our discipleship, but a huge part of the opportunity to live for Christ in the world. But the other reason I want to talk about it is because I know this matters to you. The way that I know is because I, uh, when I read reports that our house church shepherds send to us, almost all of the prayer requests or almost every person who attends, one of their prayer requests typically revolves around either school or work or what it means to be a mother. Like I'm frustrated with my kids or I don't know where to go to college or I've got this exam coming up or I don't know what to major in or I'm dealing with this coworker. I don't know if I should stay at my job. These are the questions and the prayers that we have because that's what matters to us. When you talk to high school students uh, constantly, they're, they're worried about something or other as it relates to school. This week I got um, a, a house church uh, shepherd's uh, or house church prayer request and all of them, 100% of them, were dealing with work-related issues. One of them said, work has been crazy. Another one said, work has been busy. Another one said, work has been crazy busy. Right? These things are the stuff of life. And if we don't build our lives upon truth, if we're building our work and school lives around lies, then it's going to lead us to a dead end. It's going to lead us to a dead end. We've got to see the truth because the truth then will set us free to really see these eight to ten hours of our lives the way that God wants to, and we'll really be able to live in the fullness of it, to see it for what it is, and then to be able to find life in the midst of all of the chaos, craziness, busyness of that which we do during the day. I want to look at Proverbs again. We're looking at the wisdom of God in the book of Proverbs and how that relates to practical areas of our life. Uh, I want to expose some of the lies that we have built our culture on, and as a result, we've built our lives, of, our lives upon, and bring out the truth in order that we might be able to uh, see uh, our call a little bit better. Uh, we're going to start in uh, Proverbs chapter uh, 22, verse 29, and then we're going to turn to about four or five different places in Proverbs as we go through our time. This is the Word of God for the people of God, Proverbs 22, uh, verse 29. It says, do you see a man 
skilled in his work. He will serve before kings. He will not serve before obscure men. One more time. Do you see a man skilled in his work? He will serve before kings. He will not serve before obscure men. Um, This is God's word. First thought comes from this verse, and here's the first thing, okay? Here's the first thing. You have been called to work right now. You've been called to work right now. So whatever you think that means, but every single one. So Andrew Song has been called to work. Josh Kim has been called to work. Yanni Freight has been called to work. All of us have, every single person, Nathan Mullins, has been called to work. What does that mean? If you look at this passage, do you see man skilled in his work? Literally, the word skilled is translated skilled in our version. It's the word for gifted or the word for called. Do you see a person who's been gifted in work? Do you see a person who's been skilled in his work? Do you see a person who's been called to his work? The language is saying is every person who's working has been called to that work. Whatever that looks like, whatever kind of bag you carry, whether that's a book bag, you've been called to that if you're a student. Whether that's a diaper bag, you've been called to that as a mother. Whether that's a laptop bag or a briefcase, you've been called to that as a worker. Every single one of you and me, every single one of us has been called to work. Called by who? Anytime you get a call, somebody's on the other line, right? Even if it's a bot, even if it says unknown caller. If you get a call, it presupposes a caller. Do you see a person called in his or her work? Who's calling you? The great divine caller is the one who's calling you. If you're a student, understand this. You're not studying because your teacher is giving you the assignment. You're studying because God has called you to be a student. If you've got to meet a 5 p.m. deadline, you're not doing that because your boss will get upset at you. You're doing this because this is how you honor God, the true caller, in your work. As you take care of your baby at home, as you take care of your kids at home, you're doing that not because you couldn't get a job or you couldn't get childcare. You're doing that because in this present moment, that's what God has called you to be and called you to do. Every one of us has been called to work in some way by God. Now, you think of calling, typically you think of one of two things, and and here's what oftentimes we think about. We think about calling the way it says here, skilled. That person, you know, they're just called to that. Like, they are living in their calling. It's the intersection of what you are good at, what you're passionate about, and what the world needs. Do you see someone like that? You're like, man. It's what um, Eric Liddell, famous quote from Chariots of Fire, the movie, The Olympic Runner, he said, you know what, eventually I'm going to China to be a missionary, but God also made me fast. (laughs) And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Is there something that you do that God has gifted you that you see that you're good at, you're passionate about, and when you do it, you're meeting the needs of other people? And when you do that, I feel his pleasure. My life verse comes from Acts 20, 24. It says, uh, if my life will count nothing, if only I can finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given to me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. This is my calling. It's my passion. When I was 21 years old, I prayed, God, would you give me a passion to communicate the truth of your word? When I do this, when I'm doing this right now, guys, I feel God's pleasure. This is my calling in life. When you do something that you feel uniquely skilled, gifted, called by God to do, you are operating in that area of your gifting. Now, some people, okay, some people, not all people, and I would say not most people, some people, their calling in terms of the intersection of of, of their skills, their passions, the needs of the world, some people, that is the same thing as the job that they do, the work that they do from nine to five or whatever hours that you work. For some people, that's what it is. But for the majority of people, the calling that you have from God in life and what you do from nine to five or eight to 3.30 is not the same thing as your calling. Let me give you an example. Your parents, if you're immigrant, your children of immigrants, when they came to America, they had to do something to make sure that you had food on the table and clothes on your back and a roof above your head. They did things that they weren't necessarily called to do. They ran businesses that they had no idea what to do, but someone told them, hey, run a dry cleaner, run a deli, paint people's nails, or whatever it is that they did that in order to provide money 
for your family, but they're calling in life with something different. Gosh, this is what I was made to do. When I feed homeless people, I come alive. This is what I was gifted. This is my calling in life. Man, I, I do this at work. These are the things that I do at work, but on the weekends, my goodness, when I teach Sunday school, this is what I was made to do. This is what I was born to do. You think of missionaries. Almost all of our workers who are overseas are doing some kind of a platform that they had no idea what they were doing. They were doing things like, I don't know how to run a school, but I'm going to run a school, a school in order to do what? So that I can live out my calling, which is to testify to people in forgotten lands about the glory of Jesus Christ. See, it's, there are times when your vocation, your work, your, 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 what you do at work, at school, intersects with your passions and your calling, but that's not going to be the, whole, uh, the majority of people. In fact, this word, this word uh, I, I should mention, when it says skilled or gifted, called, the Latin word is vocare, which is where we get the word vocation, right, vocation. Whatever you're doing right now is part of one of two kinds of callings. Either it's, man, this is what I'm doing because this is what I was put on this earth to do. But then there's another kind of calling, and this is where all of us are operating. All of us are operating in what is God's present and current calling for you. You may not be doing what you always dreamed you'd be doing, but you're doing something, right, something. You're, you're teaching, you're writing, you're uh, going to school. Like, you don't feel like, man, this is what I was, I was born to do, but you're doing it. Why? Well, maybe because you feel like you're not going to get a job if you don't. Maybe you feel like you're not going to have money. But the reason biblically that you do that is because this is God's call for your life right now. You've got a present calling, like right now, to do something. And the more faithful we are in that, the more God will open up opportunities to you. Do you see a person skilled in their work? They'll serve before kings. He will not serve before obscure men. I want to uh, point you to Proverbs 17, 2, and read one other verse here um, that helps to illustrate this. Okay, this is what it says, 17, 2. A wise servant will rule over a disgraceful son and will share the inheritance as one of the brothers. Here's what it's saying. A servant, okay? He, he has a master, she has a master, a wise servant. They're acting in wisdom, living out the ethic of the book of Proverbs as it relates to work. They're doing what they can do in the best of their abilities to honor the one who's called them. A wise servant, it says, will ultimately rule over a disgraceful son and will share the inheritance as one of the brothers. Even though he's not entitled rightfully to that kind of compensation when he works well in what he does, God will have a way of honoring him so he gets promoted over those who by lineage ought to get that promotion. In other words, when you're faithful in your present calling, God will honor your efforts to honor him. What does that look like? Well, when I was in high school, my primary vocation, like many of you, was to be a student. Had I known that, guys, had I known that God himself had called me to be a student at South Lakes High School, I think I would have done a lot better, given a lot more effort to really try to honor God in the workplace. I didn't love going to school, but that's what God had me doing in that moment. That's what he had me doing in those years. I worked, my first job was uh, to uh, go to Chuck E. Cheese and work. I worked at Chuck E. Cheese. I remember the first time they told me, hey, have you ever been Chuck E? Why don't you be Chuck E today? Go be Chuck E. All you got to do is put on the suit and just start dancing, right? I was like, all right, that sounds pretty fun, a lot more fun than taking pizza to people and taking money from the cash register. Uh, not from the cash register, but, but taking people's money and putting in the cash register. Okay, I'll do that, right? So I was doing that. Dress up as Chuck E. Cheese, and he's Chucky Live, he's in the band, let's give them all a great big hand. Just do that, just wave, like I've got my big old mask on waving to people, hey, like, did I, when I was doing that, did I feel God's pleasure? Heck no, not a 425 an hour, like I, I was not dancing to the glory of God, but that's what he had called me to do in that time, to make kids happy so that they could have a good time during their birthday party, the birthday party of the person that they're at. Probably Josiah went there. Maybe he'll go there tomorrow for his birthday. But maybe that's where, that's, that was my calling at that time. Be, faith, be the best rat that you can be during the time that you're working there. Like, that's what God had called me to be. 
And as faithful as you are in your present calling right now, whatever that looks like, that's what it means to honor God. That's what it means to worship God in the place you're at. Even if you think, man, you know what? This is a dead-end job. This is going nowhere fast. I don't want to be here. I don't want to do this. I don't want to, why do I even have to study about uh, the you know, world history and, and all these things? Why do I have to study about Reconstruction? Why do I have to learn about all these things? Who cares about you know, Fibonacci sequence or whatever it is that you're learning about? But because that's what God has called you to do in this present moment. And the sooner we understand that, the more we'll be able to honor God in our vocation. So here's what that looks like. Think about people in in Scripture, people who live just like you and me, people like Joseph, who was elevated to become prime minister of Egypt, but in order to get there, there was a bunch of little things that God called him to do, be faithful in his present calling in order to get to that place. Think about Daniel as one of the leaders of, of, of Babylon, but he was faithful in his present calling every step of the way. Think about Moses, who became the great abolitionist of the people of God from slavery in Egypt. Think about David, who was the greatest king of Israel. Before they were that living in their calling, they were living faithfully in their present calling as shepherds. And because they were faithful in that, God opened up the opportunities for them to be faithful and to serve in greater ways. Do you see a person wise, skilled in his work? Do you see a wise servant being promoted above the sons who should have been promoted? This is God's call. Every one of us right now have been called to work, called by God to work. Right now, you're not working as if serving a human boss. You're not studying as if serving a human teacher. You're doing it for God because he's the one who's called you to this particular vocation in this present moment. It's the first thing that we see. Your work has worth and dignity because God has called you to that right now. First thing. Second thing that we see, second thing that we see is that your work is not about you and it's not about your money. Wow. Your work ain't about you and it's not all about the Benjamins. You know this, okay? You know this, but do you know this? The, the furthest distance in the world, 12 inches, head to the heart. You know this, but do you know this? Do you breathe this? Do you live this? It's hard, I know. When you were young, what did you want to be? When you're young, when you're young right now, what do you want to be when you get older? I had this book when I was little, Dr. Seuss book called My Book About Me, where, it's, you know, one of those books where you fill in your hopes and dreams, and on the book it has a picture frame, and then you're supposed to um, paste your photo in there, and it says, this is my name, this is how many uh, years of age I am, this is how many teeth I have, these are my family members, this is how many steps it takes to get to my mailbox, and all these different things. And one of the questions it asks is, what do you want to be when you grow up? I was five when I filled this book in. I said, I want to be a doctor and an astronaut. I didn't know you couldn't be more than, uh, you couldn't be both of those things, but I said, a doctor and an astronaut. Why do I want to be a doctor? Because everybody older than me said, be a doctor. Why? They're rich. <laughs> They make a lot of money, right? Why do you want to be an astronaut? Well, because it seems mad fun to fly through space and Star Wars and all that good stuff. I want to be a doctor, and I'll be an astronaut. And good-meaning, well-meaning, well-intentioned people said to me, you know what, do it, do it. You can do anything you want to do. Have you ever heard that before? You can do anything you want to do. And that's probably one of the first lies that I remember hearing. I didn't know it was a lie. I thought it was true. You can do anything you want to do. That's what they tell us in America, isn't it? It's not really true. Can I burst your bubble with a dose of reality? You can't do anything you want to do. You can't. I'm a man. I will never be a mother. You can do anything you want to do. No, you can't. I'm 40 years old. I can't play in the NBA as much as I want to. I might, I might like play the piano in an NBA game, but I can, I'm not going to make it to the NBA. You can do anything you want to do. No, I can't. If I'm five foot nothing, I'm not going to be playing center for the Orlando Magic. No way. They tell you things like, hey, you know, you can do anything that you want to do. Because we hear stories like oh, Rudy, the like four foot eight guy who made it on the Notre Dame football team, or Seabiscuit, the horse that no one thought was going to win, who ended up winning and doing all these great things, or, or Rocky, like the, the underdog from Philadelphia beating the champ in this like crazy turn of events. Every now and then that happens. But do you understand why stories are made of them? Because it's not our everyday story. These are called outliers. 
These are called people who are outside of multiple standard deviations of that which is normal. But you interview that. You interview everybody, not the horse. You can't interview the horse, but you can interview like Rocky or Rudy. And they say, hey, you know, what, what do you want to tell people? What do you want to tell the kids of America? I want to tell them that you can do anything you set your mind to. You have a dream. It's the lie of Disney. You dream it, you can do it. You can do anything you want to do. And people look at them and say, well, he did it. Therefore, I should be able to do it. No. You can do anything God calls you to do, but you cannot do anything you want to do. But a lot of us are thinking we can because perpetuated in our culture is this lie of individuality and individual expression. Do you understand how individualized we are and how siloed we are as people in America? Do you understand this? What is, the, what is the, um, the, the very definition of the biggest dream in America is that you get, you get married and then you have a, a wife and children and you live in your own house in a white, with a white picket fence. What does that mean? Before I lived in a house, where did I live? I lived in a townhouse. I lived in a condo. I lived in an apartment where I was living with a bunch of other people. You don't want that. Go get your own house. So I'm living all by myself now with just my family of four people, five people, whatever people. I'm living in my own house. And then you want to put a fence around it so that you can be further isolated, right? Okay. And then what? Make sure you live in a gated community here in Florida so people can't get in. And then make sure that you got no porch so that people don't bother you because you got to have your own self, your own space, your own life. You got to be your own individual. And then let's build multiple floors so that everyone can be in their own place, even within that siloed house. You understand? Everything is about being separated and do your own thing. That's why the mantra of today's expression, freedom, is you do you. Right? You do you. Do what you want to do. Because we've made it about ourselves. But here, then, we see the Word of God. And it tells us something different. Okay, look what it says, Proverbs 10.5. You understand, as you've been reading through Proverbs, we've been going through Proverbs for about eight weeks now, you know that Proverbs doesn't give you a bunch of rules, right? It doesn't tell you what to do. Go do this job. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say don't do this job. It gives us principles. It gives us principles so that we can apply them wisely into life. And here's a principle, 10.5, huge, huge. He who gathers crops in summer is a wise son, but he who sleeps during harvest is a disgraceful son. L listen to what it says. Okay, you would think, okay, here's what, if, if you're just, if this is a puzzle and it's being revealed to you one word at a time. He who, okay, he who gathers crops in summer is a wise son. That makes sense. But he who sleeps during harvest is what? What would you think it should say? I would think it should say, he who, who, who sleeps during the harvest is a lazy son. Right? Anyone say lazy? Ding, 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 number one answer. How many of you say, uh, not a lazy son, but is a foolish son, because it's all about wisdom and folly, is a foolish son? Yeah, number two answer. Here's what it says. It says he's a disgraceful son. What does that mean? Who's it disgraceful? Well, here, here's what it means. When a farmer or a group of people had a field, and it was harvest time. You understand that the harvest has a specific window in which it must be harvested. Therefore, the words of Jesus were as true about evangelism or, or were, were as true about evangelism as true as it is about life also. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Come on, come on, everybody. We need you. We need you. Get your sons to start harvesting while we can. Where's your son? He's not here. He's sleeping. Why is he disgraceful, not lazy? Because he's a disgrace, because work was meant to be not about our individual expression first and foremost. It was meant to be about the needs of the community. Therefore, when everyone is working for the benefit of everybody else, but one guy is lazy and sleeping, unable to help out other people, what a selfish, disgraceful person who's made his work all about himself. Work was not meant first and foremost to be about you, about becoming the CEO of this major Fortune 100 firm that's making all this, and you've got all these lackeys working for you, and your compensation package is 200 times bigger than theirs. That's not what work was meant to be, not according to Scripture. Uh, you see the, 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 the bloated salaries and, and packages of people, and, and that's the individualism in America. You see this in other countries, that the gap between the CEO's pay and the average worker's pay is maybe like twice, two times. 
but in America, it's 100, 200, 300 times often. And so in striving for that, in fighting for that, in longing for that, in wanting those things, we make work about ourselves, and then we make it about money. Look at Proverbs 23, uh, verses 4 and 5. Explicitly, the, the author says this when it comes to money. He says, do not wear yourself out to get rich. Have the wisdom to show restraint. Cast but a glance at riches, and they're gone for they'll surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. It says, don't wear yourself out to get rich. This is what some of us are doing, guys. <laughs> you're wearing yourself out. You're sacrificing your health. You're giving up all of your health to get money so that 20 years later, 10 years later, 5 years later, you give all of your money to gain back your health. He's saying it's not worth it because that's not the way it was meant to be. Work was not meant to be about yourself, and it was not meant to be about your money. It's not even our money to begin with. It'll sprout wings, and it will fly away. So then we're young, when we're young, right, wisdom dictates that we begin thinking about work and vocation and calling in the sense of, what can I do that is for the good of others? Not seeking to go into it because it makes the most money. But what can I do that really helps other people, that builds the community where I can become the hands of God to cause flourishing in the world? I think about mothers who stay home, right? They obviously don't do it for the money. Salary.com, it's a website. They did this study one Mother's Day, actually last year on Mother's Day, taking all of the jobs that stay-at-home moms play and the number of hours that they work and they quantified this into the salary of a stay-at-home mother should be $162,000 a year. Okay, some may beg to differ and say, you know what, I think we should get paid more. I think we should, I, I don't know. But $162,000 as a baseline, okay, that's a pretty good salary. But moms don't do it for the money. What is the, someone uh, condescendingly said to this one stay-at-home mom, um, hey, what do you do? And she was sick and tired of having people say, you know what, uh, oh, you, you don't work. <laughs> I beg to differ, I actually do work. She was tired of saying that so many times. So she said, well, I am involved in the raising up of two homo sapiens in the dominant values of the Judeo-Christian society in order to prepare them so that they might subvert the social order and bring that eschatological utopia that God had in mind when he created the world. That's what I do. What do you do? <laughs> that's what do you do. Not for $162,000, but she does it because that's her calling and because she comes alive. When, maybe she doesn't come alive. Maybe she... Maybe she dies a little bit whenever she does it, but she knows when she's doing it right that what I do is honoring God because it's helping these people to grow, to become the kind of people who would impact the world for God's glory. Amen. Let's not look for work based on the salary, based on the title, based on the position, based on the reputation, because that's not what work was meant to be. And so many people have bought into the lie that it is, and so they're ending up in mental institutions, and they're ending up hurt. Would you be willing as a child of God, okay, would you be willing as a child of God to give up money and to take a lesser paying job because you know that this can help other people and I'm not selling my soul to do it? Like, would you do that? Like, that's where the rubber meets the road. We, we, have a, we have a young man in our church who's given up, I think, two, maybe, it might be three jobs, I'll, I'll ask him afterwards, but given up three, and, and they're high-paying jobs, mind you, high-paying jobs. Why? Like, sometimes I wonder, why would, you, why would you give that up, and why do you bounce around from one place to another place? And what he said every time is, because it's, it's, it's corporate, and... And, and, and the corporate, the owners, they, the partners, they just want us to, to, to push these uh, services on people that they don't need. Like for me, I just want to give them what they need, take care of them, and then, and then send them on their way. But, but the, the higher-ups are telling me, you got to push them this service and that service and that service when they don't need it and they can't afford it. And I don't want to work in that environment because that's not helping people. That's not helping people. It's crippling them to gain more money for the company. And I don't want to be involved in that. Would you be willing to let go of something for the sake of your Christian conscience and the trust that God will be able to provide for you if you do that? That's a biblical work ethic. 
Not just like, I'm going to work and then I'll give my tithe and, and here and then I'll share the gospel, I'll invite the person to church. But it's comprehensive in what we do when we go to work. See, money, and you, I know just as well as you do that money is huge. It does a whole lot of good. I, I forgot it was John Wesley or somebody said, we should make as much money as we can, give as much money as we can, and save as much money as we can. We can do a whole lot of good for money, but if your motivation for work is money, 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 more, more money, I got my pie in the sky, I want money, I love lots of money, I want all this kind of money, if that's your motivation for work, it's going to sink you very quickly. Because many a great church-going person has been sidelined on the way, in the journey, in the game, in the race because of money. That's why Paul says to Timothy, the love of money makes you like Gollum. You pursue it and you see nothing beyond it. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. If it's about money, if it's about you, then you will have no problems uh, cutting corners in order to get that cutting other people down in order to get the promotion that you so deeply want because it'll give you a little bit more money, a little bit more money, a little bit more access, a little bit more position. And many followers of Christ have compromised their Christian conviction for the pursuit of just a little bit more money. John Rockefeller has asked, how much money, how much money do you need before you stop wanting more? And his answer on numerous occasions was just a little more just a little more, just a little more, and he died emaciated, helpless, hopeless, poor, sick, alone. There was a Christian college professor, uh, very well-known, Eastern College in, in, in Pennsylvania, and he was teaching, and one year, uh, he took some of his students down to Haiti, one of the most impoverished nations in the world, medical mission trip, and he showed, and one, one student named Charlie, bright young student, follower of Christ, went with him, and they got into that little uh, area, that little village, and already 700 people were lined up waiting to get medical care, right? This is similar to what we do when we do missions work, right? We, we set up shop and all these people line up. 700 people came, but they only had the resources or time to, to treat about 60 or 70 of them. So over 600 people had to be turned away with medical issues and illnesses. Professor writing, he says, uh, some of those people um, had passed away by the next time we got there for that mission trip. And so this young uh, Christian college student, Charlie, said, you know what, um, Doc, that's what he called his professor, Doc, I, um, I've got to come back here. I'm going to come back here. I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to go back to America. I'm going to go back to school, and I'm going to get my degree. I'm going to go to med school. I'm going to go, uh, become a doctor, and I'm going to come back down here, and I'm going to do something about this. I've seen this. I cannot unsee it. I'm going to come, and I'm going to make a difference in the way things are being done here. And so he went back studied. Professor and, and Charlie lost touch after a while. Some years later, professor's writing, he says, I ran into Charlie, bumped into him just by chance in New York City. We're walking on the street, and I saw him. He recognized me, and he said, hey, doc, hey, prof. And I said, hey, uh, Charlie. And they started talking. Catching up on life, Charlie said, I, I, I did it. I'm a doctor. I'm a surgeon, for that matter. As he began explaining, he said, you know what? Um, the kind of surgeon he was, plastic surgeon. Not the kind of plastic surgeon that helps kids who've been hurt in fires or helps fix cleft palate or things like that, but the kind that objectifies women. The kind of plastic surgeon that holds, upholds a ridiculous standard of beauty and has people bow down and worship at the idol of a perfect image. That's what he was involved in. And he saw the look on his professor's face and and he quickly threw in, the, but I'm still going to church. I'm giving my tithe faithfully to God, giving lots of money to the church. And the professor said, Charlie, you sold out. You're a sellout. That's what you are. You had a dream. You had a calling. You had a mission. You had a purpose. God was going to use you to change the world but you gave it up for a jag and a jacuzzi. That's what you gave it up for. You can dress it up any way you like, but Charlie, you're a sellout. That's what you are. And the sad and tragic story of life in 21st century America 
is that many believing people are walking down a path to selling out their souls for the sake of more money, for the sake of prestige, for the sake of position, for the sake of being applauded by people, to be popular, to be first, to be praised in the eyes of this world rather than being willing to take a lower place, to be less recognized, to be even anonymous on earth in order to be praised by angels in heaven. What matters to you? Because what matters to God ought to matter to you and to me. Your work is not about you and it's not about money. That's not what it was designed to be. And if we make it about any of those things, then it will continue to enslave us. It's the second thing that we see. Think wisely, my friends, about what God is calling you to and what it looks like to work for the glory of God. Because the last thing that we see, that your work does not define you. Your work. Don't let your work define you. Don't let your GPA define you. Don't let your, uh, your alumni association card define you. Don't let where you go to school define you. Don't let your successes or failures at work as a mom, as a student define you. This is what it says in Hebrews chapter, I'm sorry, Proverbs chapter 3, Proverbs 3, uh, verses 21 to 24. It says, my son, preserve sound judgment and discernment. Okay, in other words, my son, hold to wisdom. Uh, don't let them out of your sight. They will be life for you, an ornament to grace your neck. Then you will go on your way in safety and your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. What is he saying? It's like, guys, children, sons, like my people, listen. Hold on to wisdom. Wrap it around yourself. Cling to it at all costs. Then you won't stumble along the way. Then when you lie down to sleep, that sleep will be sweet, and you won't be afraid when you put your head down on your pillow at night. How are you doing at that? How are you sleeping at night? How is, how is America doing at this? How is our national sleep deficit doing these days? Why is it that sales of coffee is through the roof? <laughs> because we've been told a certain number of lies about ourselves and about work and about our calling and about our vocation, that it's about you, it's about money, it's about being all that you can be, when that's not what God's Word has communicated to us. The Bible gives us good news that frees us, not advice that enslaves us. How do you know that you're putting this in proper perspective? How do you know that you're living in wisdom? He says if you're living in wisdom, the fear when you put your head down to go to bed at night won't be there. The sleep that you have is going to be sweet. You won't be overridden with anxiety, with worries, with fear. You'll be at rest when you're living in the midst of biblical wisdom, especially in this area as we talk about it today, when you're living in the area of wisdom at work. How do you know that your work has become too much for you? Well, you don't find rest. You feel restless all the time. I just another promotion. I gotta make one more deadline. I gotta just do one more thing. I, I can't sleep. I can't, I can't imagine not getting 100% on this exam. I got 99 is no good for me. I'm, and, and we're constantly driving ourselves into the ground. Oh, my gosh, my kids are not perfect. I got to do whatever I can in order to make them in it because it looks terrible on me as a parent if my kids are, if for, God forbid, they do something like that. As, as a pastor, my family matters a lot to me, but I'm not defined by my family. My kids are going to do their own thing. I'm going to do my best to discipline them, but you're not going to judge me based on my kids. They're making their own choices. I remember the first time Elijah went into a Korean, a Korean school class, and the first day afterwards, a teacher said to me, I thought Elijah would be better behaved because his dad's a pastor. I said, please don't put that on him. Don't put that on him. Let him be a kid. I'll deal with him but don't expect him to be something that he's a kid. My identity does not rise and fall with how good my kids are. Right? Neither should yours, mother or father. Neither should your performance at work or at school define you. Can I, can I tell you? Here's how you know. Here's how you know that you've interwoven your identity with your work or your school or your mothering skills. 
This is what Tim Keller says. If success goes to your head or failure goes to your heart, you've made too much of it. In other words, I just got a $5,000 raise, and all of a sudden, you're looking down on everybody else who makes less money than you. You thought you were nobody when you didn't have a job. Now that you've got a job, you lift your head higher, you puff your chest out a little bit more, and you look down on people who don't have as, as good a job as you do. If success goes to your head, then you've woven your identity with your work. And if failure goes to your heart, my gosh, I, I'm so, I, can't, I, can't, I can't go to church I can't go to church because I didn't get into that college. I can't go to church because uh, I, I, I can't tell them I didn't make it to church because my, my baby threw up all over me right when I was going. I'm just going to stay home and say that I was sick. Oh, you know what? I can't. Oh, I, I don't feel like I can't. Oh, I can't tell anybody that, uh, that I got fired. I have to tell them I quit my work. Failure goes to your heart. It begins to define your identity. You begin to define your identity by it. How do you know? Okay, how do you know? Okay, those things are a little bit more, uh, it's, it's out there. How do you know? Here's what God gave to us. God gave us a gift in order to help us to be freed from this. And it was given before sin entered the world. It's called the gift of rest. It's called Sabbath. Whatever your present call, your vocation is right now. Okay, I work as... Uh, an engineer. I own my own business. Uh, I am a student at the university. I'm a middle school student. I'm a stay-at-home mom. Whatever your vocation is, okay, God says you need to take some time to rest from that. Okay, I know some of you moms are like, I can't do that. What are you talking about? I'll, I'll get to that in a sec. But whatever you do, if you're a student, so this is what, after I heard this in college, I said, okay, you know, as hard as it is to do, uh, on Sundays, I'm not going to work. I'm not going to do schoolwork. That doesn't mean I get D's on my tests on Monday morning. It means on Friday and Saturday, I got to work all the more in order that I can really take God's word seriously. Can you do that as a student? Like, can you do that? Can you trust God? Oh, he says take one day out of the week and make it holy, like set apart from everything else that we do. Can I do that? As a worker, I, a, a lot of us work uh, Monday through Friday. We don't work Saturday and Sunday. You work on Monday. But can you trust? Can you trust God enough that his word is true and good, that you don't need to work on Sunday to prepare yourself for Monday's work? Can you do that? That's hard. But that's where the rubber meets the road. God rested after he worked. And he said, this is what I'm setting aside for you to do. Work after you rest. The, re the reason why we can't rest is because we've made an identity out of our work. And here's what that looks like. I know, I know. If you can't rest physically from your vocation, okay, this might sting. It's because you don't have rest in your heart spiritually. Wow. And I'll tell you the reason I know. The reason I know is because I know. Because I know. Every Sunday after this sermon is done, I'm thinking the next Sunday, the next Sunday, the next Sunday. Monday night, I'm thinking, I got to start, I got I to gotta get these ideas going. I need to chill and I need to rest. If I have rest in my soul, then I can trust God that I can rest with the rest of me. Are you able to rest, my friends? Because the spiritual rest that Jesus gives the sense of worth and meaning and significance, remembering who you are. So you look at yourself in the mirror and you straighten your crown and you remember you're a child of God. That's your identity. That's your meaning. That's your significance. No matter how badly you screwed it up, no matter how awesome you've been this week. What does that mean for as a, as a mother? I don't know what it means because it's just, it's, it's hard. But what I did for you, stay-at-home moms, is I read some mommy blogs to try and figure it out. They didn't say much, but it did say, but this is says, you need, to, you need to have some time away, once a week, for, for a certain amount of time. That means us as dads have to do more. During that time, for, for, for stay-at-home moms to get away. Not so that they, oh, let's go, let's go to the club and, oh, let's party. No. 
Listen, fasting without praying is just starving, right? Sabbath without spiritual renewal is just a time off. That's not what God is saying. We need Sabbath rest for our soul. Time where mommy can go away apart from the kids, not doing more, oh, I just need alone time to do more laundry. Not that. I'm just so glad to get the kids out of the house I can vacuum. No, no, no. Don't do the things that mommies usually do during the mommy time. Just go and get your nails done and read your Bible or something or worship God or find time with life-giving people and pray together. Experience a recreation after you have spent all of yourself to be recreated. Not working in order to rest. Oh, I can't wait to get to the weekend so I can finally rest. That's a wrong ethic. It's working from rest, right? This, this, this is how enslaved we are to work. The first question we ask, one of the first questions when we ask or when we're asked after we get, we get a job, how much vacation time do you get? How much vacation are you giving? The first thought is not about the work, it's about the rest. We work in order to rest. It's not the way God says. God says you work from rest, and then you rest from work so that you can go back and you can kill it on Monday morning for the glory of God. That's what you do. The trust that God can care for you as you do that. Um, one last thought, one last, uh, there's a guy named Stephen Gerard. He, was a, he owned a shipyard in Philadelphia. He was a millionaire. He wasn't a believer. One day, this shipment came in from overseas on the boat, and it was like a, a massive shipment. It like, he called all his workers and said, I need everybody to come in on, uh, tomorrow to unload this so the ship can go back to Europe or wherever it was. This one Christian young man said, um, Mr. Gerard, I, um, I, I just I can't work on Sunday. And he said, yeah, we need, we need everybody involved in this. If you, if you can't, then I'm going to have to let you go. And he said, you know, I, I need the money, and my, my mother is a widow at home, and I've got to take care of her, but um, I just I can't. Like, it's a conviction in my heart. I cannot work on the Sabbath. And so he let him go, gave, gave him his last paycheck and let him go. Uh, three weeks, he's looking for a job, looking for a job, looking for a job. This one bank president was opening up a new bank, and he goes to Mr. Girard. He says, hey, uh, I don't know if you got any leads. I need a, I need a bank teller. He's like, oh, yeah, this dude, I just fired him last uh, three weeks ago. <laughs> the bank president is like, why would you recommend a guy that you fired? Hey, why would I hire someone that you've let go? And he said, well, I fired him because he wouldn't work on Sunday. He said, a man who would lose his job for the sake of principle is a man that you can trust with your money. And he said, I'll take him. And he ended up making so much more money to help his mother than he did while he was working at that shipyard. Listen, it's not always the way it works, but God has ways of taking care of you when you trust him beyond what you could think of. It's not up to you to figure out how. It's up to you to figure out, okay, I'm going to obey. It's a matter of when. And I encourage you, let's obey now. Delayed obedience makes obedience so much more difficult. But if you hear the voice of God calling you to a new ethic when it comes to work, to a new biblical directive, how are you going to do this? It's by remembering. You're not defined by your work. You're not defined by your GPA, your SAT score. You're not defined by your net worth, your salary, uh, your compensation. Pay. You're not defined by those things. Because in the beginning, God worked. And after he was done creating the world, he said, it is finished so that he could rest. 2,000 years ago, God came again, Jesus. And after he had finished his work, he said, it is finished so that you could rest. The question is, will you enter into that rest? You worship your work, <laughs> you'll be depressed. But if you worship Jesus through your work, you'll find your deepest rest. Let's pray together. As we think about the Word of God and its call over our lives, remember, my friends, you, you, you have been called to work right now. It's not about you and it's not about money. And it's not your identity. You are a child of God, loved by him, a prince, a princess of the king of kings, royalty. Every time you go into work, that's who you are. 
You're not this, you're not that, you're not CFO, you're not worker, you're not employee, you're, you're a child of the king. Hold your head high with that dignity so that you can love and serve other people. Let's pray for a minute. Lord, help me to worship you as I work, as I go to school, as I stay home and take care of my family. Lord, help me to worship you. Show me what obedience looks like in that area. Let's pray for a minute. I'll pray for us and we'll continue to respond to his word. Father in heaven, so many places where the gospel plays out in our lives. It's so much more than Sunday mornings and it's so much more than house church or SNF. The gospel plays out every moment of every day of our lives. God in my waking, God in my sleeping, be my everything. And a huge part of our waking is what we do at school at home, at work. Help us to see that we've been called by God to do that and do that to the best of our ability, whether it's right in line with what we feel we're made to do or that's just our present call and you want us to be faithful, knowing that everything we do now is going to be used by you at some point in the future, that Jesus was a carpenter for 30 years and in excellence there. He became the Messiah, that John was faithfully taking care of Jesus' mother until he was released to write five of the most important books of the New Testament. Lord, help us to be faithful, to not define ourselves by our job, our work, or what we do, but to define ourselves by you. Thank you so much for loving us. Lord, help us to love you more and more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.